Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. I'm Frank Finari, and it's my pleasure today to introduce Dr. Tim Fenton, an associate professor of cancer biology at, in the School of Cancer Sciences at the University of Southampton in the U.K., uh, I've known Tim for about oh, 18 years now. He was uh, a postdoc in my lab um, 18 years ago, uh, where he studied the mechanisms of um, resistance to therapeutics in glioblastoma, in particular, therapeutics that target the epidermal growth factor receptor. And it was about this time that there were a number of clinical trials going on where EGF receptor inhibitors, first and second generations, were being tested. Uh, but they had been failing uh, miserably in clinical trial. And uh, Tim decided to try to figure out what the cause of this was. And one of the mechanisms that he discovered is that the P10 tumor suppressor gene uh, was being modified on a particular tyrosine, uh, tyrosine 240, and this was being uh, facilitated by a fibroblast growth factor receptor. And so this outstanding discovery is actually a large part of my lab right now. We are actually going forward looking at the mechanism behind this, but what what it turns out to be is that when P10 is phosphorylated on tyrosine 240, it actually binds to chromatin and plays a significant role in repair of double-strand breaks, and that's part of the mechanism why the tumors become resistant to drug as well as standard of care therapy. So in 2011, Tim uh, left my lab for his first academic appointment back in the U.K., at the University College of London, where he switched gears and started working on head and neck and cervical cancers, in particular how uh, HPV played a role in the uh, genesis of these particular type of uh, malignancies. Uh, In 2017, he moved to the School of Biosciences at the University of Kent. And as of 2019, as I mentioned earlier, he is now an associate professor at the University of Southampton, uh, where he has been pursuing how cytosine, um, cytosine deaminases, uh, the, the APOBAC enzyme family, which he'll tell us about today, uh, actually play a role not only in uh, mediating resistance to uh, retroviral infections, but also are causative in terms of tumor progression because they're, mi- mitogen- um, um, they're mutagenic, I'm sorry. And with that, let me um, welcome uh, Tim to our university to the Stanford uh, Stem Cell Consortium as he presents his topic of APOBEX-3 uh, enzymes from retroviral restriction factors to cancer drivers and beyond. So welcome, Tim. Thank you very much, Frank, for that very kind introduction um, and for the invitation to come and share some of our more recent work with you today. It's an absolute pleasure being back here in San Diego in January. It's significantly warmer than Southampton at the moment. Um, and I'm, my main challenge, I think, is going to be to try to keep you all awake in those very comfy-looking seats that you all have. So, uh, yes, I shall try and uh, gain your full attention here. I'm going to talk about our interest in the Apobec 3 enzymes. I find these to be really fascinating enzymes. So a little bit about the background there, and, and, and I'm going to share a, uh, some unpublished work with you uh, today that I'm interested in getting your thoughts on too, um, certainly. So just one disclosure, and we will go into the talk. So as I say, first, 
something about the known roles of Averbeck three genes, why we're interested in them, how we came to be interested in them, and then and, and then a story from the lab that is certainly an ongoing story. So uh, here we go. This is uh, just a diagram of, of the main thing that Averbeck's do. Um, they catalyze the deamination of cytosine bases in either single-stranded DNA or in RNA, producing a uracil base. And humans have 11 of these enzymes. Um, and in particular, my talk today will be focusing on the uh, seven uh, APOBEC3 genes, which lie in tandem on chromosome 22. And they've evolved uh, very recently, really. Um, so in humans, we have seven. For example, mice only have one APOBEC3 gene. Um, and my, my talk really will be focusing on APOBEC3A and APOBEC3B, neighboring genes very similar to each other, at least to outward appearances. So this is the kind of canonical or prototypical uh, function for APOBEC3 enzymes, which was shown by uh, Mike Malim and others um, pretty much 20 years ago now. Um, APOBEC3G in particular gets incorporated into uh, newly synthesized um, HIV virions, um, and it gets packaged together with the viral genome. And then when a new cell is infected, a new T cell, then, and, and, and you get reverse transcription of the HIV RNA genome, the uh, APOBEC3G essentially attacks that nascent cDNA, which is single-stranded, of course. And, and what that, the effect that that has is hyper-editing of the HIV genome, which renders it uh, incapable of replicating. Um, of course, HIV uh, continues to infect people, and the reason for that is that it has... Uh, taken another step in the, in the viral arms race, uh, and lentiviruses have evolved a protein called VIF. And what VIF does is it targets APOBEC3G for destruction by the proteasome. So if you remove VIF from HIV, it can't replicate in human cells because the HIV is hyper-edited by APOBEC3G. So very important uh, antiviral role for apobecs and, and the different uh, members of the seven gene apobec3 family in humans are able to target a wide range of viruses so some of you may have seen a recent literature on apobec3a potentially possibly apobec1 um, hyper editing uh, SARS-CoV-2 genomes so that you can see a, a distinctive uh, pattern of uh, mutations that one can tentatively ascribed to the action of APOBEC on, on the genome. So why are we interested? So as Frank mentioned, I'm a cancer biologist. Um, several years ago now, um, this is really the discoveries that were made in, in 2013, and many of you will, will have certainly spent time looking at these, particularly those of you who've gone to Ludmila Alexandrov's talks, um, so I won't labour the point, but um, the realisation really in 2013 that that one or more of the APOBEC3 enzymes are responsible for generating a large number of somatic mutations in, in, a, in a wide range of human cancers. And they produce a very distinctive pattern of mutations. Uh, APOBEC, uh, the APOBEC3 enzymes have a preference for deaminating cytosine with, uh, with a T in the immediate 5' prime position. And, and what happens if you have replication 
over that site before basic schism repair can be enacted uh, and the C can be replaced uh, with another C, you get actually C to T transitions or C to G transversions. And it appears to depend on the, ty- on the nature of the uh, polymerase that's doing the replication across that site. In some tumours, you see more C to T. In some tumour types, you see more C to G. But both of these mutation signatures can be ascribed to the activity of, of a one or more of the APOBEC3 enzymes. So these were some of the key papers that really showed that back in 2013 from Ruben Harris's lab, who was at Minnesota, now at UT San Antonio, and Dimitri Gordenin uh, over at the NIH, NIEHS over in North Carolina, and, and um, uh, also Mike Neuberger's group and Mike Stratton in Cambridge. So Apobex are ostensibly there to counteract viral infection, but it would appear that in cancer there is this off-target activity. And for, for various reasons, this can really be ascribed to the activity of APOBEC 3A and or APOBEC 3B. And it appears that in different cancers, both can play a role, with APOBEC 3A being the primary cause of these uh, mutations. But nonetheless, APOBEC 3B um, certainly, certainly causing mutations too. So that kind of summarizes some of what we, we know about, about these enzymes and how they function. So also, again, just showing the, the mutagenic effect of that deamination of cytosine if basic scission repair is not able to act before the site is replicated over. Again, if those of you who've been to Ludmill's talks will be used to seeing uh, this figure, I expect, or versions of it. This just shows these two mutational signatures, 2 and 13, uh, which I've read arrows against, um, and the tumour types in which they're seen. And apologies, this is very small, but the main point I want to make here is that you particularly see enrichment for APOBEC-induced mutations in, in um, epithelial cancers, so squamous cell carcinoma, um, is a particularly uh, enrichment for these type of mutations. And this is where we came in, really. Around the time when these papers were coming out, we had been looking at genes that are overexpressed in HPV-induced cancers versus other cancers to try and see if we could pull out a set of genes that were important for HPV-mediated tumorigenesis. Um, And this was work being done by um, Anka Chakravarti, who was a fantastic PhD student with me and is now a a postdoc in in Toronto. He uh, actually derived a a, a gene signature for HPV-associated cancer. Um, And what we were able to do, particularly looking in head and neck cancer, where you have two distinct etiologies, you either have HPV causing the cancer or you have a sort of smoking and drinking-associated uh, etiology. The smoking drinking one is on the way down, but the HPV associated one is on the way up, and it's been described as a, as a cancer epidemic. Um, we can make a good comparison between the two types of cancer, and, and this is just a graphical abstract taken from a paper that we published back in 2014, where we showed that there's a strong enrichment for, HP, for APOBEC3 mediated mutations in the HPV-positive subset of head and neck cancer. You also see it in HPV-negative, but it's particularly strongly enriched in positive and in cervical cancer, which is all driven by HPV. And the the key, probably, point we made in this paper was to demonstrate that 
another gene that I'd worked on with Frank, PIK3CA, so PI3 kinase, is actually mutated by Apobec at two hotspots in the helical domain. And that is actually, so our work was the first to ascribe actually a driver role for Apobec3 mutagenesis in cancer as a, 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 um, so beyond purely generating passenger mutations, this links the APOBEC3 activity to the, to the generation of oncogenic mutations. So that's where our interest really came in. The clinical significance of APOBEC3 uh, deregulation in cancer is evident from studies looking at um, expression levels, so APOBEC3B, uh, high expression of APOBEC3B is linked to poor prognosis in breast cancer. Um, in lung cancer, uh, tumours with high levels of APOBEC-generated mutations um, tend to do worse. Um, this is TCGA data on, on the left here. Um, but on the right, you can see something that's becoming apparent um, in the era of checkpoint blockade and immunotherapy, that tumours with more mutations tend to respond better they've got more neoantigens there for T-cell responses, and so it flips around, and you see a flipping of the survival curves, more APOBEC activity in non-small cell lung cancer, admittedly with a very small number of patients from this cell paper, uh, looks to be associated with, a, with a, a better outcome. Now, when we're thinking about uh, the development of treatment resistance, which has been something that I've been very interested in since my time in San Diego, of course, there are different ways in which uh, resistance can occur. And at the top here, this is showing the uh, treatment selecting for the, the uh, emergence of pre-existing resistant subclones within a tumour. But we know that, or the, the, the data suggests, the evidence suggests that um, in addition to uh, the selection of pre-existing subclones when we treat cancers with, for example, targeted therapeutics, there is, can also be de novo mutagenesis occurring uh, in, in what we call uh, drug-tolerant persister cells. Uh, and in this uh, process, APOBEC activity has been invoked as a way in which uh, tumours can uh, essentially gain more heterogeneity, more potential to evolve uh, treatment resistance through acquiring de novo mutations. There are a number of efforts underway in academia and in industry to try and target APOBEX, so to inhibit APOBEX, with the idea that you might be able to administer an APOBEX inhibitor alongside a targeted therapy, for example, to try and suppress this emergence of resistance. Of course, that's predicated on the resistance coming from de novo mutagenesis rather than the selection of pre-existing clones, which you can't do much about there. And, and the evidence for this comes from some very nice work from Aaron Harter and colleagues at, at um, MGH, um, looking in the paradigm of uh, targeted therapy for lung cancer patients who have activating mutations in their epidermal growth factor receptor gene. They get treated with uh, EGFR inhibitors because these cancer cells are essentially addicted to the activity of EGFR. And, and Aaron showed very nicely in vitro systems that you can get both mechanisms at play here. Um, the emergence of resistance in drug-tolerant persister cells uh, in addition to the um, selection of very rare pre-existing uh, resistant subclones. And this is from a preprint from their lab, um, just showing that this is in the context actually of a different targeted therapy, which targets a particular fusion protein in lung cancer, just showing that in a treatment-naive tumour, there was very little uh, 
appearance of uh, APOBEC-induced mutations, but in the many uh, treatment-resistant cancers that were subsequently sequenced when the patient became uh, developed resistance to EGF, uh, to the uh, crizotinib in the first instance and then to other ALK inhibitors later on, uh, you could see a very strong enrichment for APOBEC signature mutations in these tumours. So really looking like APOBEC's playing a an active role in that development of resistance. And they, there's some nice work in, in cell lines to complement that in that study, uh, including the demonstration that APOBEC3A is actually induced by EGFR TKIs. Um, one interesting challenge in the field is that we see a very little correlation between the expression levels of uh, APOBEC enzymes and the mutation signature. So it's kind of, there's, there's a lot of currently hand-waving about episodes of APOBEC expression and mutagenesis, um, but it, it, by the time the tumour is actually resected, often the levels are very low. Uh, but it kind of makes sense. A tumour is likely to lose fitness, the tumour cells are likely to lose fitness if they have a high, high level of this very mutagenic enzyme on constitutively. Um, so the thinking is that there's episodes of, of APOBEC-induced mutagenesis. Just before I get on to, to our, our recent work, um, I wanted to show you evidence that there are, there's function for APOBEX beyond this um, hyper-editing of, of, of viral genomes. Um, there appear to have been uh, additional functions that have evolved uh, for APOBEX3A and APOBEX3B. Um, this is the graphical abstract from a very interesting paper published by a um, collaborator of ours, um, Simak Ali, at Imperial College London, several years ago now. But there's been some very nice follow-up on it uh, very recently, preprint, showing this really surprised me when I saw this. Uh, be interested for your thoughts on this. But showing that APOBEC3B associates with the estrogen receptor, goes to estrogen receptor target genes, and actually, the deaminase activity of APOBEC3B is required to make double-strand breaks in the promoter that recruits the DNA repair machinery, and that has the role of remodeling chromatin in these promoters. Now, it seems like quite a wacky way for a cell to um, enact induction of gene expression to make double-strand breaks in this way, but it, the, the, the data are very solid, and as I say, there's been follow-up study recently showing this, this is probably a wider-ranging phenomenon than just with estrogen receptor. So that's one way in which APOBEC3B appears to have acquired a role in, in transcription, and that may actually explain its um, role in ER-positive breast cancer, so that poorer prognosis associated with higher APOBEC3B expression may actually be related to this function as opposed to its mutagenic function. With APOBEC3A, there's recent work from a group at Yale showing that APOBEC3A in a deaminase-independent fashion can go and sit on the uh, in, uh, on, uh, interferon-stimulated gene promoters on the uh, interferon response elements and actually repress the expression of, of ISGs. So APOBEC3A itself is an interferon-stimulated gene, but it appears to, to enact a kind of negative feedback loop to dampen down that interferon response by acting as a transcriptional repressor. So both APOBEC3A and APOBEC3B, these culprits for somatic mutagenesis in cancer, appear to be playing important uh, roles in, in not only antiviral responses, but uh, in this case, regulation of gene expression. So as promised, I'm going to share some of our 
more recent work with you uh, today. Now, we are very interested in understanding how APOBEC 3A in particular, but also APOBEC 3B, as I'll show you, is normally regulated and what it may be functioning, of what it may be doing in keratinocytes. And the reason for this, as I mentioned early, earlier, a lot of the tumours with the highest APOBEC-induced mutation loads are squamous cell carcinomas arising from um, squamous epithelia. So we, we want to look, rather than trying to look in cancer cells, we're looking in normal uh, keratinocytes, uh, how things should be regulated with the aim of understanding what's going wrong during tumour development. Now, Aperbeck, and, and the, the work I'm going to present is being carried out by two excellent postdocs in the lab. Uh, Nikki, who did her PhD with me, is now a postdoc in, on the wet lab side, and Ian, who is an excellent bioinformatician. So, Aperbeck 3A is actually celebrating something of a birthday this year. It's 30 years ago that uh, a group, uh, Rasmussen and Sellis, published this paper uh, showing uh, an inauspicious-looking spot on a 2D gel. Some of you probably don't have not seen 2D gels before. Uh, isoelectric focusing in one dimension to separate proteins by their um, isoelectric point and then SDS page um, and, and to separate them by size. Um, and what this group observed was a protein or a group of proteins that were overexpressed in uh, keratinocytes taken from psoriasis lesions. And they showed those same proteins, they could induce them if they treated keratinocytes with forbolester, so PMA, which is also well known as a tumour promoting agent. And SPOT2116, they named Forbolin 1 because it came on with forbolester treatment. And several years later, once the APOBEC3A gene had been cloned, another problem we don't really wrestle with very much these days, it was appreciated that Forbolin 1 is actually APOBEC3A. So APOBEC3A, highly overexpressed in psoriasis and, in, and potently interferon, and, well, it is interferon-inducible, but potently forbolester-inducible in keratinocytes. Okay, so to kind of summarise where we're at at the moment, APOBEC3A, for many, well, for reasons that are probably uh, too uh, niche to go into at this point, is likely the primary driver of somatic mutations in cancer, but its expression is often very low to undetectable in the tumour biopsies. So there's a weak correlation between expression and mutation signature load. And also, looking in bulk tumour data, uh, where a tumour is obviously a group of, of many different cell types, can be quite misleading when looking at APOBEX. There's a lot of APOBEC3A expression in macrophages. There's a lot of APOBEC3G expression in T lymphocytes, for example. So when one's looking at RNA sequencing data from bulk tumours, it's very difficult to know what's actually expressed in the tumour cells and what's ra rather expressed in, for example, infiltrating uh, immune cells or, or stromal fibroblasts, for example. So we've taken advantage of a lot of single-cell RNA sequencing work going on in our department at the moment. This is with our close collaborators, uh, Professor Gareth Thomas's lab and Emma King, who's a head and neck surgeon. And uh, what I'm showing you now are single-cell RNA-seq data. Um, and these, this is from normal mu oral mucosa. So these are matched normal samples taken at the time a resection was done for a patient with head and neck cancer, in this case tonsillar cancer. And they take normal tissue from the contralateral tonsil.
This is just the tumor cells. So Gareth's really interested in fibroblasts. So he said, we've got all this single cell data. I'm just interested in the fibroblasts. You go and have a look at the tumor cells, which in, in this case, normal epithelial cells, which was very uh, gracious of him. Um, and what we saw for, for, um, for various reasons, having looked at a number of other cell states, including cell cycle, for example, we got interested in the differentiation status of the, uh, the cells in this single cell data. And what we observed was that APOBEC3A expression was largely confined to a group of differentiating cells in these normal, um, in these, in these normal samples from the oral mucosa. The same is true when you, it's important with single cell sequencing as well to look at what's happening on an individual case-by-case -case basis just so that you're not seeing an effect that might be skewed by you know, a few cases showing, showing a pattern. And we can see that in, in individual cases, again, the APOBEC3A expression is correlated with uh, differentiation genes rather than with genes expressed in the basal keratinocytes, things like P63. Uh, and that's true both in normal samples and in tumor samples. And I should say in the tumor samples, this was done very carefully. So the surgeon selected regions right from the core of the tumor. So we're not, we're not looking in the tumor cases at normal epithelium at all. We're looking at just tumor cells there. So we were very interested in looking at APOBEC 3A and B because there's a lot, being, a lot of controversy and kind of debate in the field over the years about which is really the, the key mutator. And this is obviously important for people thinking about trying to develop inhibitors. Which one do you go after? Do you go after one or the other or both? And, and often from bulk data, you, you kind of see just a kind of general, they appear to be somewhat correlated. And that's all you can really say. So we were very interested to look at what this looks like on a cell-by-cell -cell basis. And what we saw was something that I think, at least, is very interesting. You see the occasional cells where they're both there, but actually the, the, the expression patterns are distinct. And that's probably clearer if I show you the um, pathway analysis of the um, genes that are most uh, highly correlated on a cell-by-cell -cell basis with APOBEC3A or B. With APOBEC3A, what we see, as apologies if this is rather small, but you'll have to believe me that I'm reading to you correctly, that it's genes associated with uh, keratinocyte and, and, and uh, differentiation. Okay, the differentiation process in these um, stratified uh, epithelia. So that's, what, that's the genes that are co-expressed with APOBEC3A, and that shouldn't be surprising to you because it's kind of what I've just already described to you. But now we go to APOBEC3B and we see something very different. Here we see genes that are essentially involved in the cells transiting from G2 phase of the cell cycle through to mitosis. This is very interesting to us because, as I'll show later, we were quite easily able to, to get rid of APOBEC3A. We were able to make, use CRISPR to make APOBEC3A knockout keratinocytes, no problem. Applying the same techniques, um, strategy, uh, to APOBEC3B, we've been unable to recover APOBEC3B knockout keratinocyte clones. And we do think that APOBEC3B is playing a, a key role actually in, in uh, cell cycle progression in these cells. Um, in breast cancer, Simak Ali observed if he reduced APOBEC3B expression with an SHRNA, he also see a d decrease in proliferation. 
So we're looking into the mechanism by which that's happening. Um, the same is true in the tumour cells as well. So I've just shown you data from the normal mucosal samples. This is from the tumour samples. The same thing. We see APOBEC3A in the more differentiated tumour cells and APOBEC3B co-expressed with genes involved in the transition to mitosis. If we look at a panel of um, HPV-positive uh, or a pharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma, so that's essentially tonsil and tongue-based tumours, that is the, really the site at which HPV has a, a strong involvement in the head and neck. You can see again, this emphasises the point, that the expression pattern of APOBEC3A is closely related to the expression of uh, genes that are expressed in differentiated cells, whereas APOBEC3B, actually the gene that is most highly correlated with is KI67. So... Um, very much you know, classic marker of cell proliferation. This is also true in esophageal squamous cell carcinoma uh, from a large data set that we analysed. Uh, I should point out that uh, aside from data on the esophagus and the head and neck, we looked at uh, quite a number of other single-cell RNA-seq data sets, for example, from lung cancer, breast cancer and others, and there's just not enough APOBEC3A expression in those data sets to see it. So we know that head and neck and esophagus have a lot of these APOBEC signature mutations, so maybe it makes sense that we can see more of the APOBEC3A in these particular tumours. So these are the ones that we've able be, been able to look at and see this relationship so far. Now, we then wanted to move, obviously, to an experimental system, um, and we work with a cell line called NICS, which were given to us originally by... Um, Professor John Dorbar in Cambridge, who is an expert on HPV. NIX uh, was originally um, isolated about 20 years ago or so from neonatal foreskin, so uh, skin keratinocytes, um, and is spontaneously immortalized. But they have a diploid genome, so it's nice for doing CRISPR. You're not worried about trying to knock out six copies of your gene, as can happen in cancer cell lines. Um, and it importantly retains the ability to differentiate in culture. So you can make rafts and it will reform a stratified epithelium and keratinizing epithelium. And we can grow them to high density and induce differentiation that way as well. In fact, HPV can complete its life cycle in NICs and that's completely dependent on differentiation. Uh, this data shows that uh, what John's lab were able to do was they did single-cell RNA sequencing of NICs grown to high density. What happens when you grow NICs to high density, even in a standard 2D culture, is you start to get a second layer of NICs growing on top of the first layer, and those cells are more differentiated. The, 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 the bottom layer are, are, are basal-like. So we have the, the different cell types arranged here, where we have the basal NICs uh, up in the right. We have these cells here, which are in S phase of the cell cycle, in blue. These cells here are in G2M. And then as we go down this continuum here, we're getting more and more differentiated. And what we can see, which is very useful for us, is that in our cell model in the lab, we see the same thing as we saw in the tissue samples from human patients. So the APOBEC3A is all down here in the more differentiated cells, and the APOBEC3B is in largely in the G2M phase of the cells that are cycling, and a little bit here in S phase. So that was useful for us because we thought we had a, a reasonably relevant model system to be looking at. Now, going back into the lab here, um, 
what we were able to see or, or, or Nikki was able to do was develop some reasonably simple assays in which we could see the, uh, at least the onset of differentiation in, in our NICS cultures. So differentiation-related genes coming on. In this case, I'm showing you involucrin and cytokeratin-10. So if we uh, starve ourselves, Nikki starves them for 40 hours, um, we see an induction of involucrin and cytokeratin-10 expression. We also see it, as I say, if we grow the cells to high density in the middle there, and if we add an EGFR inhibitor. So I've, I've stayed true to EGFR in some respects, at least. Um, and this is interesting because it's similar to what Aaron Harter has observed in lung cancer cells. Treat them with an EGFR inhibitor, and you induce APOBEC. In this case, we're inducing a differentiation response here um, by treating uh, the creatinine sites with an EGFR inhibitor, which is something that's been long established. It's well known that if you inhibit EGFR, uh, you'll induce differentiation. So these three conditions, we see the induction of the differentiation genes, and sure enough, we see induction of APOBEC3A expression under these conditions. So this all ties in nicely with what we're seeing in the clinical samples, um, in the single-cell data from NICS, and now we're able to manipulate the expression of APOBEC3A under these conditions. So, so far I've shown you that APOBEC3A is expressed in differentiating keratinocytes, while B is expressed in proliferating cells. So they're in different cell states. Next, we wondered what the function of APOBEC3A is in this context. Why is it being turned on during differentiation? And this is really kind of where we're at at the moment. We've conducted a lot of RNA sequencing, um, and we've seen, actually, rather interestingly, that what happens when we knock APOBEC3A out is we have an apparent uh, loss or, or, or a defect in differentiation. So again, this list of um, processes here from the gene set enrichment analysis shows that what we're losing when we knock out APOBEC3A is keratinocyte differentiation. Um, of course, in... Uh, with CRISPR, one has to be mindful of what, or, or have we got odd clones here that are doing different things. We did the RNA-seq from two independent clones of wild type and A3A knockout, um, and we've got additional clones where we see very similar. Um, this is just showing the growth curve. So what we immediately observe, and, and it's obvious when working with the cells in the lab, is that the knockout cells grow to a higher density before they stop. And, and start to differentiate. So you can see here the slowdown in growth happens uh, at a higher cell density with the knockout cells, and we see the induction of uh, involucrin and cytokeratin-10 expression at a higher cell density in, in the case of the APOBEC3A knockout. Quite dramatically, if we add EGFR inhibitor to the knockout cells, they don't show the same response with the involucrin and cytokeratin-10 induction, and again, if we starve the cells, so another way in which we induce differentiation, we again, we really blunt that induction of involucrin and cytokeratin-10. And I'm always paranoid uh, that, this, that things are artifactual until we've shown it a few different ways. So we are, we've really struggled to find an siRNA sequence that hits APOBEC3A but not B. There's lots that are advertised to do so, and our usual kind of workhorse with siRNA is the on-target plus uh, siRNAs for, from Thermo, um, the, the smart pools. Well, this, this smart pool isn't so smart. So the, uh, that, in that case, the on-target plus smart pool hits both A and B very strongly. And I think there's quite a lot of 
potentially red herrings out there uh, from people looking at A for BEC, 3A and B with, with SHR and A's and SIR and A's, but I'm, I'm going to leave it there and not name any names. But this is a sequence that hits A and not B. You have to believe me on that because I've not shown the B data. But what we see when we hit the cells with, with A3A, SIR and A is that we again see a reduction in the cytokeratin 10 induction uh, shown here, in this case when we're adding EGFR inhibitors. So we do think this is a, a real phenomenon that, that getting rid of APEX3A specifically gives us a, a differentiation defect. The other thing I wanted to show in terms of what we see at the level of gene expression in these cells, and maybe this is related, and people, I'm no expert on, on uh, skin differentiation. I'm trying to become one, but if any one of you uh, has thoughts on this, I'd be most interested. Um, I mentioned the PNAS paper earlier where they show a role for APEX3A in repressing ISG expression. And this shows a group of the genes that they identified being most differentially expressed uh, in wild type versus APEX3A knockout. Uh, in this case, they used T cells um, and hit them with interferon. And, and this shows a group of ISGs whose expression is increased in the knockout cells. We see the same thing in our keratinocytes. So if we uh, either look at our, well, if we um, hit our keratinocytes again with the EGFR inhibitor, and we see very similar when we starve the cells, we get an induction of these ISGs. So I'm showing three of them here that we've looked at via QRT-PCR. And you can see that if we knock down A3A, again with our A3A-specific siRNA, we get a large increase in the production of these ISGs. So our data are certainly consistent with those of, of the Yale group. Um, and so we are, we are currently working on, on the working hypothesis that this uh, regulation of transcription by APEX3A may extend beyond these ISGs, in the keratinocytes at least, and we're looking at some of these differentiation genes to see whether it may directly be modulating expression of those. Now, that's all in the case of differentiating cells. What Nikki was very interested to do too um, was to see what the inducibility of the APEX3A gene looks like in starved cells versus asynchronous growing cells. And this was really interesting. So shown here, the scale's very big for reasons that will become apparent shortly. This is what happens. This is the increase in APEX3A expression that Nikki sees if she adds for Blester, a known inducer of APEX3A, and interferon, another known inducer of APEX3A, she gets a nice increase in expression um, from adding to asynchronous cells. But she then just, out of interest, and probably because we were interested in EGFR as well, added growth factors back to the starved cells to bring them back into the cell cycle. And then she saw this enormous induction of APEX3A. This is way beyond anything we've seen before. And it actually gets up to levels that you can see if you start to play around with transfecting A3A into cells. Um, and so this we see nicely uh, an increase at the, uh, the protein level, shown here, Western blotting. It, it's, it's unusual to see, uh, well we'd not seen conditions under which we could really detect the APEX3A expression with native antibodies. We'd had to use CRISPR to put an HA tag on the endogenous gene to be able to follow it. But now we can see it very nicely with the antibody against the endogenous protein. 
This just shows the level of induction we get when we starve the cells, which I was showing you earlier. But look what happens now if Nikki adds PMA and interferon to the starved cells. We have a much stronger induction of APOBEC3A when she adds PMA and interferon to starved cells than when she adds it to the asynchronous growing cells. Uh, and then we can even increase that further by combining growth factor stimulation with PMA and interferon. So what we think is that this initial increase in APOBEC3A expression that we see upon various ways of inducing differentiation, starvation, EGFR inhibitor, high confluence, is not only increasing APOBEC3A gene expression, but it's making it very potently inducible by other factors. Uh, we can see that if we, we, we need EGF to really give the full response, these cells grow in a mixture of serum, EGF, insulin, they're quite picky, a number of other things, and we grow them on mouse uh, fibroblast feeder cells. Uh, and we can block this uh, with an EGFR inhibitor. So we've got these two things going on now. In the first instance, in, in proliferating NICs, if we add an EGFR inhibitor, induced differentiation, we increase APOBEC3A levels. But in the case of once we've starved cells and we re-add growth factors, we have an EGF, EGFR-dependent spike in, in A3A expression, which is up to kind of what we're thinking of we're calling these kind of pathological levels, the levels that one would see in, for example, psoriasis lesions and potentially spikes that would occur in cancer, during cancer development that might be giving these somatic mutations. If this is not some funny quirk of NICs. We see the same thing if we use primary keratinocytes, very similar induction of expression um, and, again, inhibited by an EGFR inhibitor. And, and again, with the primary cells... The opposite's true when we starve the cells. Um, if we inhibit EGFR, we lose the, uh, the, the, the initial increase in A3A that we know is important to give this subsequent big burst in expression. So I know it's, it's a little bit hard to wrap one's head around. We've got EGFR acting in the opposite fashion in, in the two different contexts. But that's what we see. And we see in both cases, this is proceeding via the RASMAP kinase signaling arm of the pathway. So it's, if we use a MEK inhibitor or an ERK inhibitor, we see exactly the same as if we use an EGFR inhibitor. We see nothing if we use an AKT or a PI3 kinase inhibitor. MCF10A, so different type of epithelial cell. Now this is mammary luminal epithelium. We see the same thing, but it's at much, much lesser magnitude. So there's something we think specific going on in keratinocytes. We've tried a number of different cell types, and keratinocytes really are the ones that give us this very strong phenomenon. And we don't see it with the other APOBEC3 genes. So this is, this, this is a specific effect among the seven APOBEC3 genes to APOBEC3A. This is, uh, as I say, this uh, paradigm in which we are starving the cells, then releasing them back into the cell cycle um, and, and in this EGFR-dependent increase in A3A expression, you can see the protein level here. This is an, a deaminase assay that we do on cell extracts using uh, fluorescently labelled single-stranded oligonucleotide. When APOBEC uh, deaminates its target cytosine in this oligo, um, we then use um, sodium hydroxide, heat the oligo, we get cleavage of the oligo because um, of the presence of... of uh, uracil DNA glycosylase, which has removed the, the uracil um, to create an A-basic site, which is then cleaved. Um, we, we then see this lower 
molecular weight product. This is the oligo that's been cleaved, so it shows the deaminase activity. And we also see, using a digital PCR assay developed by our collaborator, Remy Buisson, who's just up the road at UCI, uh, UCI uh, we see a very strong RNA editing activity too in these cells. So this is looking at a particular mRNA called DDOST that Remy showed was edited in, in tumours with high apobec 3 a expression. Uh, we see a very strong RNA editing activity. So we've taken samples from the wild type and knockout cells. Uh, we've conducted some more RNA sequencing, deep sequencing and exome sequencing, which we're using now to identify globally the RNA editing events that are catalyzed by APOVEC3A because it, it's possible we see strong RNA editing. We don't see genotoxic effects under these conditions as measured by uh, gamma H2AX, which you do see if you transfect A3A into cells. Uh, and so we're, we're asking the question whether actually the RNA editing activity here of A3A may be important in mediating these effects that we see. As I say, in the PNAS paper, they showed it was a deaminase independent effect. The other thing that we are doing um, is adding back the wild type or deaminase dead mutant of Apobec3A into the knockout cells to see if we can tease out whether this is deaminase dependent or independent effect. Um, and that, that is ongoing. So I wanted to share this kind of model with you. Um, this is just something that I'm thinking about at the moment uh, and would be kind of certainly grateful for thoughts on. I'm wondering whether we see, so I should say that APOBEC3A is about 10 times more potent as a deaminase than APOBEC3B. We know the APOBEC3B is on in cycling cells, at least in G2. A3A, as far as we can see from the single cell RNA-seq data and our experiments in NICS is not being expressed in cycling cells. Um, I haven't shown you uh, today, but if we use a, a CDK4-6 inhibitor um, to block the cells in which we get the big induction of A3A from going into S phase, we still see that strong induction. So that's happening in G1, I think, in a set of cells that are not then going on to replicate. The, prop, the, the cancer mutagenesis catalyzed by A3A is happening at the replication fork during, during DNA replication on the lagging strand where you get exposure of single-stranded DNA. So there's a lot of work has shown that. So a cell would not really want to have A3A on as it goes through S phase. So I wonder whether this is a kind of low-risk tactic by, by the cells that they don't risk expressing A3A in the basal cells, which have proliferative potential, but once the cells have initiated terminal differentiation, you're not worried about accumulating mutations because the cells are going nowhere. They're just going to die. They're on that pathway of terminal differentiation. So maybe there you can afford to have more APOBEC3A and a more potent antiviral response because you're not worried about accruing mutations. This is just an idea, and uh, we certainly need to see, what we, see whether we can um, to prove that or disprove it. Um, but that, that's the kind of way in which we're thinking about this. But the other side of this is that if you have an injury, a wound healing response, which actually, if you look at the genes that are upregulated when you re-add growth factors to starved keratinocytes, you see a lot of wound healing genes coming on, then this may be where you have problems. And this might be some of the what we're seeing in cancer is when you then have a, A3A high cells potentially proliferating. So 
I think it's wrong place at the wrong time for Epibec 3A. It shouldn't normally be on in cells that are proliferating, but if it is, then that's where we could have the, the risk of mutagenesis. So normally should be restricted to the differentiating cells, but if it's on in cells that are cycling, then, then, we, then that's where we may have the problems. And I'm reminded of, uh, many people have described this, but uh, this is taken from a particular review um, by Harold Drovrak, um, New England Journal, tumours being described as wounds that do not heal. So these processes of a wound healing response going on. Um, again, that's, that's speculation, but uh, that food for thought maybe, that, that this could be the conditions under which we see the problems with Apobec 3A. So I've shown you that Apobec 3A is expressing differentiating keratin sites. Hopefully that's uh, been reasonably convincing, while Apobec 3B is expressing proliferating keratin sites. So this is all new. It's expressed, Apobec 3A, and strongly inducible in those starved cells that have exited the cell cycle. And we see the same thing in cells that we've made very confluent. Apobec 3A loss results in a differentiation defect, at least as measured by the expression of involucrin cytokeratin 10. We're not getting a full differentiation there, but, but those markers. And increased interferon-stimulated gene expression in the keratinocytes. So as I say, is this a mechanism by which cells are switching on APOBEC 3A in conditions where they know they're not going to be undergoing DNA replication um, to get a stronger antiviral response. So that's uh, what I wanted to tell you. Uh, thank the people who've done the work. I already mentioned Nikki and Ian. Uh, Anker and Stephen led the work initially where we showed the role for APOBECs in making PIK3CA mutations. Gareth and his lab for single-cell RNA-seq data from head and neck cancer. Remy for help with the uh, digital PCR assay to look at editing. John and his group in Cambridge for the single-cell RNA sequencing data from NICS. And, and of course, the patients who donated their tissue for, for this work and the funders who funded the work. So thank you very much for your attention. I take any questions. Great talk. Thank you so much. Um, so two questions, I th two kind of one on the light of the viral infection and the other one more on cancer. So um, stem cells are more resistant to viral infection, and especially in the skin, we know that the basal cells are much more kind of resistant to viral infection. And I wonder, um, based on your single cell RNA sequencing, the apple um, back B versus A um, that there's really differential expression between those two. If you think there's anything to do with actually being um, giving the advantage of those basal cells to resist viral infection. The second question is more for the cancer. Um, so as cancer progresses in basal cell carcinoma that you mentioned, um, as the, it progresses throughout um, uh, development, then uh, there is an EMT that, that happens to induce or to allow metastatic uh, progression to happen. And I wonder if you see any kind of differential expression of apobec B versus apobec A in the basal cells versus the differentiated cells as well. Great. So the first one... Yes, I think, so B and A have been shown to be able to respond to different viruses, and it would be very interesting. So, for example, HPV induces APOBEC3B expression um, through the actions of E6. Uh, but actually, the data that there are have implicated A as being a restriction factor for HPV. The data are not strong on that. 
Um, so it's, I guess B, if B is doing something important in the basal cells to help with the restriction of viruses that may encounter there, and then for some reason there's a switch to A in the differentiating cells, it's, yeah, it's a very interesting thing to think about. I mean, as you know, HPV goes into the basal cells, so I don't know. It's, it's, it's what we're just trying to get our heads around at the moment, and I think it would be great to have a discussion about that. Um, the second question, uh, so in terms of looking at EMT, we're just starting to play about with doing some siRNA against transcription factors involved in EMT because we're wondering whether that's what we're seeing with the wound healing response. So it coming up, it's coming up in some of the pathway analysis when we compare the starved versus the stimulated conditions, yeah. So that's a, a sort of beneficial side effect of what we've got from our RNA editing analysis for RNA-seq. So I think it could, could well be the case. We're looking at a gene called FRA1, so part of the AP1 complex that's involved in wound healing and, and, and DMT, because we see that being highly expressed in these situations, and it's downstream of EGFR2, so it's a good candidate, I think. Yeah, and we've We've done some 4C-seq as well, looking at additional cis-acting regulatory elements that may be switching on A3A to that strong degree. Uh, yeah. Tim, have you done any conditional knockouts for these? I mean, I remember we had this conversation a while back, and you were trying to actually delete the whole locus. I mean, there's a number of ApoBac genes all in a row, and it's kind of complicated Maybe you can comment on that. Yeah, we'd like to. It's been, you have to be so careful with these genes because they're so similar to each other. For example, affymetrix oligonucleotide arrays, I know people don't use them anymore, but they all, all the probes cross-reacted against the different apobex. There's a lot of antibodies that are not specific. And trying to design guide, design guide RNAs or SIs has been really challenging because the chances of hitting more than one are, are high. We haven't done conditional knockout what we have but in the mouse have you tried it? yeah in the mouse what we've done is we've replaced the single mouse apobec gene which encodes a cytoplasmic enzyme so so mouse experimental tumors don't have this apobec mutational signature and they're much more kind of muta mutationally bland than the human tumors and and so what we've done is we've replaced the single mouse gene with an entire fragment about 210 kb of chromosome 22 that contains the entire human apobec 3 locus. So we have a humanized apobec 3 mouse now with them all under control of their own promoters. So we've got to the point of showing that the genes are expressed in a human-like fashion, and we're just doing some MLV experiments with a group at the Crick showing that we have actually functional apobec activity in, in splenocytes. Um, and we've, cro we've crossed that now, initiated crossing to a lung cancer model uh, so that, that we want to see if we're getting human-like tumours. And then on that background, we want to then knock out individual apobex and see what's happening. But, yeah, that's um, we're hoping it's someone... Long -term, long -term it's a long project. and expensive project. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Genentech seem like they want to help us with that, so that might be a useful source of funds. <laughs> so philosophically, why do you think we have these genes? I mean, antiviral or other other things in evolution that they're, they're necessary for? The people who spend a lot more time, time thinking about the evolution of them than I do and have the expertise, the, the, the thinking is that actually the human, in higher primates than humans, the locus has expanded a lot to counteract endogenous retroviruses. 
So it seems like the ERVs are what have driven the, this diversification of the locus. Um, several of the APOBEC3 genes have been shown really important in controlling retroelement activity, and that's another thing we're looking at with the RNA-seq. That could be related to this ISG induction. I was having an interesting chat with, with, with um, Faye earlier over at the Cancer Center about that. Um, yeah. Well, there's no further questions. Just want to thank Tim once again for an outstanding talk. Thank you.